Well, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The scripture teaches us that. And this morning, I want to suggest that true blessedness is to have a new heart. All the world's problems can be solved with one simple solution. We just need new hearts. It's the heart of man that is the problem. It leads to all the problems of, of our world. And if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation, and the Lord gives us a new heart. This morning, my text is the Beatitudes, very famous, um, those little sayings of Jesus that kick off his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So if you'd like to turn there, that's, that's my text for today. That's where we'll be. And as we start, I'm reflecting on an experience I had every single day for three and a half years that I went to work at the church down in Houston. It was a church plant I was part of, and we didn't have any buildings or physical property, and so we rented a school for worship on Sundays, and then we rented a couple of suites in a small office building, like a three-story office building, and it had a bunch of other businesses there, and it had a nice formal lobby. One of the things they had there was a guard who was there um, all day long, opened the building in the morning and was there and would greet you as you walked in. His name was Charlie, and I would walk in, and we had the same exchange every single day. Charlie had curly white hair. He was, I don't know, somewhere over 70, um, and I'd walk in and say, good morning, Charlie. How are you doing today? He'd go, oh, man, I'm blessed for this day. That was his saying every single day, I'm blessed for this day. And I bring it up because I want to ask what, what it means to be blessed or blessed, which is what each one of those Beatitudes says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And so on. That language is not common today. Unless you eat often at Chick-fil-A, have a blessed day, or you sneeze. God bless you. But what are we really saying? What are we wishing upon a person when we say God bless you or have a blessed day? That language really isn't used often other than those couple of rare instances, and, and yet it's all throughout the scriptures. As I mentioned, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who, and then it gives a whole list of things, who does not um, walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Then it tells us a little bit. He's like a tree planted by water who bears fruit in due season and his leaf doesn't wither. But that's, allegor or that's, a, that's, that's a metaphor for us. Um, elsewhere, Psalm 32 says that blessed is the person whose transgressions are forgiven. Or you go back even further, we see God blessing Adam and Eve at the very beginning in, in the creation account. After he made Adam and Eve, it said God blessed them and then he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And then when he finished all his creation, in six days, he blessed the Sabbath day and declared it a day of rest. His blessing was upon it. Or if you jump over to the New Testament, Ephesians uses the language of blessings. In chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Again, there's that language. So, but what does it mean? Well, if you do it, just a simple dictionary uh, look up, and you'll see that it is, has two main definitions. One is to be set aside or consecrated as holy. To be blessed is to be set aside, or to bless something is to set it aside and consecrate it. It's special. Or it means to be endowed with divine favor, God's favor. What is God's favor, and do you want it? Now, if you take this little list, these eight beatitudes here, after each one, there's a description 
of the favor that God is giving. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the favor. The kingdom of heaven is yours. In fact, that one is also the favor that is defined at the eighth, at the eighth of these, where it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we've got bookends. On these eight beatitudes, the kingdom of heaven is the divine favor you get. And then there are six other things in between those that more or less describe some aspect of being part of this kingdom of heaven. So for those who mourn, they will be comforted. For those who are meek, they will inherit the earth. For those who are pure, they will see God. For those who are peacemakers, there's a gift for them as well. For those who are merciful, there's a gift for them. And, it, and there's a list of all these, these different um, favors. Now, I want you to understand something. The Beatitudes are not prescriptions. In other words, if you want to inherit the earth, become meek. Now, do you recognize if you were to make yourself meek so you can get the earth, you're not meek. You see that? You would be putting yourself forward. You would be striving and asserting to become something so that you get something. That's not what meekness is at all. Meekness hangs back and doesn't feel the need to assert itself. And so Jesus calls himself meek, for I am gentle or meek and, and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He says that in Matthew 11 when he invites people who are heavy uh, laden and, and weary to come to him for rest. He says, I am gentle and humble of heart and I'll give you rest for your souls. So Jesus was anything but weak, but he was humble and meek. And so there's these, these are not so much prescriptions of what you have to do to get these favors. They are descriptions of the marks of the new heart and the new life in Christ. Jesus is pronouncing here that God's favor is upon such people, and here's what it looks like. It's a description of a heart that has been changed. The new person is different, and this is so contrary to the natural disposition of people that you can spot it if given enough time. So imagine for a minute, um, it's a dark thought, but imagine for a minute you're captured in a communist country and you're put into a prison camp with thousands of other people. And you would be persecuted if you said, I'm a Christian. So no one in there is willing to raise their hand unless asked. No one is offering that information right away. But given time, you could find the Christians in there. And the reason is because their heart has been made new in Christ. And so therefore they look different. They have a poverty of spirit about them. They have a meekness to them. They, they mourn for their depravity, their lack of holiness. They are um, peacemakers. They want to see harmony between people. There are certain things about them that would be different. And over time, it would start to stand out. They're not always selfish. They're not always fighting for their own way. They're not um, pushing people down. They're not being proud. So we'd start to see the difference in, in who they are. This morning, as I mentioned at the beginning, is the, the Sunday after All Saints Feast. I mean, it's why we have white up here. We're reminded of the holiness of the people of God being consecrated, set aside as God's people. We are a part of that. And it's natural for baptism at this time to bring people into this body of Christ. So All Saints is about belonging and baptism is about initiation into that belonging. The Beatitudes are not a list of spiritual gifts like the other lists in the scriptures. 
So there's somewhere between, I think, 25 and 30 spiritual gifts listed. Everything from the ability to teach to gifts of administration to prayer gifts to um, prophetic words or uh, having a prayer language. Or There's probably like 30 or so gifts uh, listed. And it says that Christ apportioned those to his people according to his grace. Not everyone has all of those gifts. The Beatitudes are not like that. All eight of these are for all believers. It's not like one person mourns and one person is uh, poor of spirit and another person is a peacemaker. All of these are for all believers because they are a description of the blessed state of those whose heart has been made alive in Christ. If you're a Christian, this should describe you in increasing uh, magnitude. Now, I want you to understand how they work. And John Chrysostom, who was one of the early church fathers, called this a golden chain. These are not haphazardly thrown in here. They're not random. I mean, nothing Jesus did was random. It was intentional. He was a master teacher, is the master teacher, smartest person who have ever lived. And he was intentional about teaching us so that we would understand what the, the new heart looks like how a Christian looks different from a person who's not alive in Christ. And it starts with the poverty of spirit. That's the first one. And the way the chain works is the person who is poor of spirit recognizes their depravity. I am not worthy. I don't measure up. God expects so much and I'm down here. I'm selfish. I'm uh, self-centered. I, I just, I'm not holy. I recognize that and what God is calling me to and therefore, I'm poor of spirit. And that leads me to the second one. I mourn, not over some lost loved one. That's a description of humanity. Every person deals with that. The, the Christian is mourning their depravity, their spiritual bankruptcy. I'm grieved that that is my heart's condition. And so that's what I mourn. And then it makes me meek. So I'm not gonna be self-assertive. I'm not gonna grab anything. I don't deserve anything. How would I possibly be so bold as to go and presume anything belongs to me and try and take anything? I become meek as a result of that. See how it works? It goes from one to the next. And then I start to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I actually want to be what God wants me to be. I hunger and thirst for his righteousness. Those first four in the golden chain point to our relationship with God. And then we start to look around. So the next thing after that is I don't just hunger and thirst for righteousness in my life. I want it for yours. I want it for the world. I want God's righteousness or his right relationships everywhere. And so then the next thing is blessed are the merciful. So I'm going to extend mercy to somebody else because I know how much mercy I've received at God's hands. That's a natural thing. I'm not going to go and, and demand justice of you when God has been so merciful to me. I'm going to extend mercy to you. And then I'm, I'm going to um, start wanting a singleness of heart. Purity of heart is not just mor moral purity. It's actually a heart that's not contaminated with many competing desires. Purity of heart. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's what I want. Those who are seeking first God's kingdom will see God. That's the divine favor, he says here. Do you want to see God? Focus your heart on his kingdom. And then from there, it's the peacemaker. I, I want to see harmony in our world. And so blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. In other words, God sent his son to make peace 
between sinful man and a holy God. And so we then are given this ministry of reconciliation to go out and try and reconcile people to God and have harmony among others. And so we start to take up this desire to see people reconciled, to see forgiveness extended, to work for a world that's in harmony. And then the last one is really hard. I mentioned it already. Because this description of the heart is so radically different than our prior to Christ heart, the world will see it and hate it because it will be so different than their heart. And so they will persecute you if you are like this. Jesus is forearming us by forewarning us. Understand they will persecute you. But blessed are you when others persecute you for my name's sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. You belong to heaven. He encourages us on the front end with that so that we're not going to be surprised when it happens. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount, it's impossible, it is impossible to do what it says. This description is so lofty that in our own strength we can't possibly do it. And then if you just keep going, it starts talking about things like anger and lust and conflict and giving and prayer and all this stuff. And it, it, it takes the law of Moses and it raises it to like a super high level. And so the reformers used to talk about the two uses for the Sermon on the Mount. The first was to show us our inability to live this way, that we don't measure up. And so then we, we recognize this, that like, I can't do this. This is impossible. Martin Luther, the great reformer from Germany, um, and the, the founder of the Lutheran Church, um, uh, he said this, the Sermon on the Mount is Christ saying nothing about how we become Christians but only about the works and fruit that no one can do unless he already is a Christian and is in a state of grace, which is the second use of this. Once you're a Christian, now here's how to do it. So the reformers used to say the law of Christ drives us to Christ for justification. I can't live this, but thankfully he did it for me. And so I go to him and say, help. And he says, you're forgiven and come walk with me. And then what Christ does is he sends me back to the law for sanctification. Now go live what I said in my power with my Holy Spirit and you will become more and more like me. So the law drives us to Christ for justification and Christ sends us back to the law for sanctification. You have to note the context here. It says, the very beginning, it says, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. He is speaking to believers here. He is speaking to his followers. And he's saying, this is the true blessed person who has the new heart. And then this is what your life is going to look like if you're walking in the power of the Spirit. You will be able to do these things because I've done them for you and I will do them in you. That's the invitation to the new life. Now I want to point out something about the sequence. There is a front door to this. The first beatitude is the front door in. And it's... It, for baptisms, we actually bring the font up here to the front. The tank is back there. We're going to immerse some, some kids in that tank. But it's fitting for it to be at the front door because we go into God through the death into baptism and then the new life. We are buried with Christ in baptism and brought up to new life. Or we are sprinkled with the atoning blood of Christ from the cross and therefore made clean in him. So the first one, the poverty of spirit, is the way in. And it's not like you go through once and never need the door again. It's always, you pass this every time. I am in need of a savior. I can't save myself. He is my Lord and my savior. I am poor of spirit and I know it. 
I wouldn't dare say that I deserve anything. That's the way in. That's the very first one. And it's not a financial poverty. I'm not saying, Jesus is not teaching here about being without resources. That would be weird because a little later in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that we are to give alms. When you give alms, he presumes we're giving to the poor. Don't let your right hand see what your left hand does. How would we do that if, we've, if we're poor, physically poor? We have no resources. How can we give to those that are poor? So he is not saying that. This is a spiritual poverty. It's also not an, an emotional poverty. He's not saying the poor in spirit are depressed, you know, like I'm, my spirit is downcast within me. He's describing a recognition of my spiritual condition before a holy God, that I don't measure up, that my heart is dead and needs to be made alive in Christ. That's the front door in. Jesus so powerfully portrays this when he talks about two different people that go up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and another a tax collector. The Pharisee stands up and says, look at how great I am, God, I fast, I give, I'm so awesome. That's his prayer, basically, I'm paraphrasing. The other one goes up and says, he won't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He looks down, he beats his breast, and he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which one of the two went home justified? It was the second one who did. That is to be poor of spirit to recognize the need and to cry out, God, have mercy on me. And he does. He does have mercy on us because he loves us. Now, get this. Here's the gospel. And after this, we're going to go to the font, which will preach this even better than I can say it because it'll be done with symbol and water and, and the body of Christ around the font. The gospel is this, and I'm borrowing from Keller, who's borrowing from other people. You are way more broken and depraved and poor of spirit than you ever knew but you are loved more than you dare imagine. And the cross shows you both of that. The cross was so bloody and violent and nasty, it shows you how bad your sin is that caused Christ to have to do that. And because he was willing to do it, it shows you how incredibly valuable and loved you are. You're that broken and you're that loved. And so those who are poor in spirit are in fact blessed. They have God's divine favor because they have Christ on the cross. And so we belong to the kingdom of heaven and are members of it and it is ours. It's our inheritance if we've come to Christ, if we've recognized our poverty of spirit and said, Lord, have mercy and prayed and prayed and invited him to come and be our Lord. That's the invitation. The cross shows us both my sin and his love and what good news that is. And then the rest is just learning how to live this out, to become more and more like this. And we get a foretaste of it now. We start to have these blessings. This is a description of what the believer is. And it will increase more and more as time goes on. And one day we'll be fully perfected. How amazing that is. So if you're a Christian, if you are, you know you're poor in spirit and you've prayed and Jesus is your Lord, then I want to encourage you to take a look at this whole chain here and recognize the places where these, these, this divine favor is coming to you in your life. Recognize where God is making these things happen. He's made your heart alive, and you're being transformed from the inside out, increasingly so. If you're not a Christian, I want you to take a look at the list of the divine favors in here. The kingdom of heaven. Do you want the kingdom of heaven? I mean the kingdom of heaven and the king of heaven, not some idea of heaven, which is basically you get whatever you want, you know. We make up these ideas of heaven. It's like, take something you enjoy in this life and think, get that times a thousand, and that's heaven the way you want. That's not what heaven is at all. Heaven is where the king of heaven is. Do you want him and all that comes with him? Do you want to be comforted? Do you want to be filled with hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you want these things? If you do, they're here. 
All you have to do is simply come to the Lord. He's so quick to forgive and will receive you. So I want to invite you to do that. And I also want to invite you to remember, if you've been baptized, remember what was said over you. We'll have the kids come in. They'll be around the font. It'll be a big celebration of this. And may it spur you on towards love and good deeds. Would you pray with me? I thank you, Lord, uh, for the new life that we have, that Jesus, you are doing something in our hearts that we could not do for ourselves. I thank you for your incredible love. Would you remind us of that by your spirit? I pray for those who are about to receive holy baptism. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill them. For I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.